0: Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to bless your word to our hearts. We ask you to speak to us, to teach us, to change us. We do not want to go out the same way we came in. We pray that you would be honored by the respect that we give to your word, and that you would help us to have obedient hearts, and it is in your name we pray. Amen. So, Hebrews, we've said it as we're going through, it bears repeating though. Hebrews is one of the books of the New Testament that we do not know the author, in terms of who is the actual person who wrote the words onto the page. We do know that the Holy Spirit wrote the book of Hebrews. And so it's scripture, it's given by the inspiration of God, but it's written also in a very specific context. And it's important for us to remember that as we go through the book of Hebrews because it's written from an Eastern perspective, from an Eastern cultural context. And for all of us growing up in the United States, We see things from a Western world. We see things uh, from a specific train of thought, specific ideas about how the world tends to work, and, and that shapes a lot of things, consciously and subconsciously, about just how we perceive the world and how we perceive things to be good or bad or right or wrong. But in a Western world, the way we break down a thought is we start with an idea, we expound the idea, and we come to a conclusion. We like to move in a very linear fashion, and that is, frankly, great, for trying to get a point across sometimes. But it's especially great in a Western context. And in an Eastern context, a linear thought is just not important. It's just not really a consideration in trying to make a point because Eastern thought is much more about we have a central idea and we are going to attack that idea or support that idea from every angle imaginable. Okay, and so you can think of it, if it helps, like putting a tire on a car, right? If you have six bolts and that you need to mount to get that tire securely onto the car, you're not going to put on the first bolt, and then the second bolt, and then the third bolt, and then the fourth bolt. You're probably going to put on bolt one, and then bolt four, and then bolt two, and then bolt five, and then bolt three, and then bolt six. And then you'll go back and tighten them up. Bolt one, and then bolt four, and then bolt two, and then bolt five, and then bolt three, and then bolt six. And you're doing that because you have a central thing, a tire, that you want to get well balanced and securely mounted, so that you can go somewhere with that vehicle. And that's how Eastern thought works. You have a a central idea, and you are basically bolting that truth into reality by sort of crisscrossing your ideas to make sure it's securely mounted. And so the book of Hebrews is making a very central point, but the author is what sometimes feels to us like he's pinballing all over the place. But really he's making a very concise point, and that is that Jesus Christ is better. He's better than anything else. And everything. And even more specifically, the book is written to the Hebrews. It's written to Hebrew Christians, Christians in the first century specifically, who have become Christians and as a result are dealing with all kinds of hardship from their Jewish culture. Uh, They've lost their jobs, they've lost their families, they've lost their means of provision. There's a lot that is pressuring them to say, you know what, let's just give this up. Or maybe we don't want to give it up, but maybe we'll just kind of Sweep it under the rug. Maybe we'll just kind of pretend that this isn't really the main thing, right? And so the author of the book of Hebrews is writing a very specific letter to a specific group of people to emphasize that, no, no, this is the main thing. Jesus Christ is better. He is better than the angels. He is better than the Old Testament prophets. He is better than the Old Testament law. He's better than the Old Testament order of the priesthood. He's better than the Old Testament system of sacrifices. He's actually better even than the Old Testament high priest He's better than all these things, and the author is explaining all these ideas to help a a struggling group of people realize there is nothing worth uh, diminishing Jesus for. There is nothing in life that is so valuable that it's worth saying, I'm going to push Jesus Christ's role in my life to a back burner. Okay, So tonight we start off in chapter 10, but because it's an Eastern cultural book, we're not really starting off in chapter 10. We're continuing a thought. I, I w- went back and looked. Chapter 1 and chapter 13 are the only two chapters that don't start as a continuation of a thought. Okay? Everything else is, therefore, now, because, for this reason, therefore, 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 because, for. It's like, it's like there's basically the author just starts and doesn't stop. I had a sister this week say, maybe that's great proof that the book of Hebrews is written by a woman because there's just one thought that just keeps going. And... So we get into chapter 10, and it's important to understand really the context of where we're coming at from chapter 9, and where we're coming at is this idea that Jesus Christ is better specifically than we've been, we've been talking about he's better than the Old Testament priesthood, he's a better high priest, but also, we were talking about in chapter 9, the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, the idea that in the Old Testament law, there was just a constant offering of new sacrifices. Because your sins were constantly happening and, and the sacrificial system set in place was good. It was given by God, but it was not complete and it left something to be desired. And so the point that the author has been making is that Jesus Christ is that desire. He's better. He's actually so perfect and so holy and so fully God that his death on the cross didn't just pay a sacrifice, it paid all sacrifices for all time. It finished the work. And so that's where we're at in chapter 10. That's where the idea, that's where the thought is going. So chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For when they would not, for when, for then, would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. He says the law can never make those who approach perfect. The Old Testament law, again, is not a bad thing. It was written by God. God gave it to his people, but it was not written to be the end of their relationship with God. It was written to be the beginning. It was written to, written to be the idea that points them to the, to the hope that there is someone, there is a better sacrifice coming who's going to finish this system off so that we don't have to do this. Because he says, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Every sacrifice that happened in the Old Testament did not remove someone's sins. But it demonstrated their desire to be forgiven and it brought them into a position of humility with the Lord where the Lord would accept where they were coming from. Okay, but it never perfected anybody. It never made anyone righteous. It was a demonstration over and over and over again of their sinfulness. It was never a demonstration of how righteous they were. It was always a demonstration of, I messed up, an animal has to die. I messed up, there needs to be a sacrifice. I sinned, there's a consequence. The law, it says in in chapter nine, the law is all about reformation modifying your behavior but christianity is all about transformation it's about god putting a new spirit inside of us therefore chapter 10 verse 5 when he came into the world he said sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure then i said behold i have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will O god previously saying Verse 8, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So he's quoting uh, a reference from the Old Testament Psalms here, where the Lord says, sacrifice and offerings are not what I've desired i'm desiring a body i'm desiring he says i've i'm a body who will do my will and so the the psalm is prophetic and speaking of fact that jesus isn't just a sacrifice he's not just something to be killed he's someone to demonstrate holiness okay and so he comes and when he's, the author's point is this prophecy in the psalm says hey, god doesn't want sacrifices and offerings To which the appropriate question is then, well, then why did he tell us to do them in the first place? And it's that they're a precursor. They're there as a shadow of what's to come. So he says, he says he takes away the first that he may establish the second. He's taken away the sacrifices and offerings to establish what? To establish the body that has come to do the will of God, to establish Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, to establish that his sacrifice, his death on the cross is greater than every offering ever offered put together. Okay, so he's saying, look, the first came and then the second. The first is not God's final desire. The second is what God wanted to establish. So verse 11, he says, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them in after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts And in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of sin, there is no longer an offering for sin. He's making a point. Okay, again, and in some of these points he just reiterates over and over again. It's like you're tightening up the bolts on a tire, right? You go over it, and then what do you do? You go over it again, and you drive 100 miles, and what do you do? You go over it again. Because you want to make sure that that tire is on tight. You don't want it coming off on the interstate. You want to make sure that the truth is of the reality that Jesus Christ is better is cemented in our minds and in our hearts. And so the author just kind of takes these points and he comes back around and he comes back around again. So we talked about this the last couple of weeks, but he brings it up here. He says the priest, the Old Testament priest, he said they had to stand ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over again. These priests were always at work. They were always trying to get ahead and they couldn't. Because there was always one more sin and there was always one more sinner and there was always their own personal sin and their own private sin and, and there's, you just couldn't ever get in front of it, right? You were always behind. You were always in debt. You could never actually get to a point of like, oh, I'm actually good with God. I'm actually in the black, right? No, you never were. You were always behind and you were always, and so you're always working. And so they're always standing and ministering and he says, but this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Jesus is not standing, Scripture tells us. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated because his job is over. His job is finished. Now, he still is going to, I mean, he's still playing an active role in humanity. We're told in Revelation he's still going to come down and, and get his church before the tribulation. Then he's going to come down again with the church as an army and he's going to set up a kingdom on earth and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. So this isn't to say that Jesus now has, is obsolete at all, but the point is that the sacrifice has been made. It's not that the sacrifice is being made, it's that Jesus Christ died once and his holiness was so great that that one death was sufficient. So sufficient that he can now be seated at the right hand of God the Father so that at any point in time an accusation comes against one of the children of God, Jesus can say, yeah, but I already paid it. I already paid for that one. I already paid for that one. I already paid for that one. And every time, you know, this, they did this sin, the punishment is death. Yeah, I already took care of it. I already paid it. That price, is, the price has been paid. There's, there's no sin that can come before the presence of God that Jesus says, oh, shoot, we didn't cover that one. Right? It, does, it doesn't happen. It's not possible at this point because his holiness was so great. But he also says, understand, this is important for us. Where there's remission of sin, there's no longer an offering for sin. There's an idea that our sins are forgiven in, in a full context. Okay? And when we sin, sometimes we have this idea that, well, you know, if you, if you walked with the, Lord, you walk with the Lord, you walk with the Lord, you walk with the Lord, you sin, and then you die. Oh... Um, Whew, um, you know, we hope. No, 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 there, there's a confidence in this, right? If you have repented for your sin, Jesus Christ has forgiven you, and he is outside of time, and so he has forgiven you, including for the sins you have not yet committed. That doesn't mean that you don't need to repent of them, because when you walk in sin, you're gonna separate yourself from fellowship with God. But Romans 8 tells us that whom he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, he, I'll, I'm gonna read it, because I'll mess it up otherwise. But it's a, it's a very powerful verse because it helps us see that God sees us outside of time. It says, chapter 8, verse 30 of Romans Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's a past tense word. When God looks at you, he sees us as glorified, as finished. Because he's outside of time, so he can see our completed state. So sometimes we can get all nervous, like, oh, wow, I sinned, I messed up. Did I, did I just blow my salvation? Does God, am I even saved at all? You know what? God died for that sin too. Every single one of us is, uh, unless you die like right now, is going to sin again before we die. And Jesus Christ's blood has covered that. And so there's still, thats not an excuse for sin. We're going to get into James in two weeks. And it's so interesting to me that Hebrews and James are back to back because Hebrews is all about how offensive it is to think that you can do anything to, to compare what Jesus has done. And James is all about how offensive it is to know what Jesus has done and not do something about it. And they're both, they're parallel truths. They're a paradox. They, they seem contradictory until you get into them and realize they're absolutely complementary. Okay, but sometimes we just, as you, know, as you go through the Word, it's like you're dancing on a knife edge. All right, But it's important to understand we have an assurance of salvation and an assurance of forgiveness, and that is not lost when we sin. That is not an excuse to then sin. But Paul said where sin abounds, grace abounds much more so. And then he says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. So it's important we understand there's, there's a confidence of our salvation even when we sin. And there's also repeated commands over and over and over again. When you sin, repent. Do not stay there because it will affect you. It will bring consequences into your life. And so do not walk in sin, but do not lose confidence of the salvation that Jesus Christ has offered us. Verse 19, he's going to give us some super practical applications here. Okay? Because Jesus is better, therefore, brethren, verse 19, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. So he says, okay, we have now boldness to enter into the holiest place. We can come into the presence of God, not by anything that we've done, but by what Jesus Christ has done. So he says, hey, we have this privilege, let's take it. Let's come into the presence of God, and he gives us some specifics. He says, let us draw near with a true heart. Don't, don't go into the presence of God second-guessing. Are you, do you belong there? Because you don't, right? But Jesus Christ invited you in. If you go into the presence of God and you're like, well, you know, I really shouldn't be here and, and maybe I'm just not good enough, what you're doing in a sense is elevating yourself. You're saying, well, you know, my problems are greater than Jesus' sacrifice. And that's, that's pride. To refuse to go into the presence of God is to, is to insult what Jesus Christ did for you. So he says, you go into the presence of God with a true heart in full assurance of your faith. Verse 23, he says, hold fast the confession of our hope. You hang on to the truth of who Jesus is. Don't hang on to your own strength. Hang on to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And then verse 24, he says, and let us consider one another. You go into the presence of God. You go in boldly. You go in with confidence and you go in with other believers. He says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. If a person refuses to go to church because they don't feel like it, they are in sin and they need to repent. And people will say, well, you know, I just kind of worship God on my own way. And they have all these very nice excuses, and I've been hurt by church, and you know what, I really, I, I sympathize if you've been hurt by people within the church, but that is not an excuse for ignoring the Word of God. And I know, I mean, this is the group of people who come on Wednesday night, right? And so I recognize that you guys are all actively obeying the Word of God, and I'm, I'm blessed by that. But sometimes it's good for us just to step back and remember that when the Word of God speaks emphatically, it's for a reason. And sometimes it's, it's just good for us to remember because we all go through seasons of life. Sometimes it's a season where it's just easy to come to church routinely. And sometimes that season fades away. And all of a sudden, you know, the people you used to like hanging out with just aren't there anymore. And you find people who start to annoy you. Or sometimes you move to a new city. And it's like, well, I don't know anybody there. You know, which ironically enough, if you don't know anybody at church, the way to remedy that solution is to go to church, right? Like that is sort of fixing the problem if you don't feel like you know anybody at church go to church more that is actually how you fix that but he says do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together and it's like especially post-covid okay it's just kind of become a fashionable thing to do in christianity where we stay home and i get the service online and man i just love this guy's teaching and it's so good and it's walking in sin it is not an excuse the word of god says do not forsake The assembling of ourselves together. And you'll run into people like this all across our town, all across our country, all across the world, who just think that, you know, oh, it's the Word of God, but that part doesn't apply to me. No, no. We have to always be willing to go to the Word of God and say, does this apply? And, And is this caveated or is it just given? And this is just given. And he says, so much more as you see the day approaching. If you're convinced that we are in the last days, which we have been in the last days since Acts chapter 2. But if you're convinced that the world is starting to go crazy and the world might be coming to an end very soon, that's an even more critical time to be in fellowship with other believers because we need each other. Right? I, built a, a, I was burning a brush pile this week because it's you know, the end of the summer. You get your piles of branches that, that build up and you've got to burn them off so they don't just make a mess all year long. and I've lit a a bunch of these over the years, okay? I've probably lit more brush piles than most people in this room, just going on a limb here. See what I did there? Um, (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Uh, But here's the thing. If you're burning a brush pile and you want to burn it down well, you have to pack it in, okay? If If you get a brush pile and it starts getting out of control, you don't have to worry about, do I have enough water? Okay, you just start pulling it apart. You get you get it spread out, and what happens? It just goes out. It, fire does not sustain itself out in the open. Fire needs to compact. It needs lots of material. It needs to be branches to stay lit. Need to be touching other branches. They're going to burn each other. Okay. The, the best way to get a fire to burn down well is just pack it in. It starts burning down. You bring in a tractor and you just pack it in. You really want to keep it going, you get some big logs on the bottom, you start scraping some dirt, and you layer it up, and you're just going to ease out all that air, and you're just going to pack it down. You can come back days later. My personal record is nine days. I kept a fire going for nine days once because you just pack it in, and the heat just sits and holds, and those logs just keep burning. And it's not super exciting at that point, right? The, The exciting part is when you first light it off. And all the little pieces just go up, and it's you know, you get a twenty-foot-tall flame and it's exciting, and then you just get to these like nice little smolders, and it's barely two foot tall, but you start poking around and there's some intense heat in there. Right? But you spread it out, it all goes out. If you're gonna be on fire for the Lord, it's the exact same thing. You get close to other believers, you get uncomfortably close. You let them rub you the wrong way and they're going to sand off your rough spots and you're going to sand off their rough spots and the Lord is going to be glorified. Verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This, is, this has the potential to be a scary verse for us, especially if we read it fast, and especially if we don't bear in mind the context. He says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, how many people have sinned after receiving a knowledge of the truth? After becoming a Christian, how many people have sinned? Every single Christian. So if you read it real fast, you're like, well, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. I guess Jesus' sacrifice no longer covers me. I guess I'm going to hell. That's not actually what the verse means. Because the context is, again, this is why we need to understand the scripture in the context in which it was written. Okay, this is why you hear pastors say, now in the Greek, this word means this. Because we're trying to understand not just what does it say, but what is it meant to say and how is it meant to apply to my life? What is the author trying to convey? And what he's trying to convey, remember, is to a first century Jewish audience. He's saying, if you accept Jesus Christ, and then you walk back into the Old Testament law and you say, that's going to make me holy, those sacrifices are worthless. There is no longer a sacrifice for your sins at that point. If you say, I don't want Jesus anymore, he's t- it's too much hassle, and you go back to the Old Testament law, those sacrifices will do you nothing. And so he's warning them. And and this is, you know, we aren't, as a a largely, maybe totally, group of Gentile people who don't have uh, a Jewish background, we're not really at risk of saying, well, I'm just going to go back to the sacrificial system. I'm going to go back to the Old Testament law. But we are at high risk of saying, you know, walking by grace is just complicated. I think I'm just going to give myself a couple rules, like good Christians don't do this. And if I just stay within those rules, I don't have to worry about anything else. That is a dangerous lie. That's a a lie that the church has been fighting for 2,000 years. Because grace makes us nervous. It makes us nervous to say, if you love the Lord, you can then do whatever you want. Because that will drive your actions. It makes us just uncomfortable. Right? Sometimes, you know, to be able to say, hey, that, that needs to be a personal conviction between you and the Lord. There are certain areas where that's, that's all we can say from the scripture. You need to ask the Lord about that. What does he want to look like in your life? And we say, well, that just makes me nervous because that means I'm going to have to actually go boldly into the throne of God. I'm going to have to go into the presence of the Lord and figure out what does the Lord want me to do in this situation with my life at this place and time. That's a little bit unsettling. So what do we like to do? We like to say, you know what? I think I'm just going to say Christians shouldn't do this or Christians should always do this. Right? We Just, just give me a rule and I'm good. But that's not what the Lord calls us to. And if he if he is calling us to walk in fellowship with him, and we establish rules just to keep ourselves cozy, the author says that won't do you a thing. In fact, that's actually going to pull you out of fellowship with God. Right? That that's going to remove you farther from the presence of God. And there's a very severe warning in here. Okay? And, and I don't want to overstate it or understate it. But there's a, a a bit of a scary implication in here that if you go into works as your means of determining your righteousness, you are not a Christian. That's the implication that he's making here. If you say I'm going to define my Christianity by making sure I just don't cross these lines and I'll be happy and good and safe and comfortable, you're not a Christian. You don't understand what Christianity means. Christianity is Jesus Christ died for my sins. He rose again from the dead, and thereby, thereby forgiving my sins, but also giving me a promise of life. He didn't just redeem me, he didn't just make me undead. he made me vibrantly alive. And so now because of that, I'm going to walk in relationship with him and seek his will and seek his pleasure and seek to know him more intimately. And I want to have a two-way relationship where he speaks to me and I walk in obedience. And I speak to him and he speaks back to me and I ask for his counsel and he gives it to me. That's Christianity. Christianity is honestly a freaky religion because there's a a lot of what feel like loose ends that are really just, you need to walk with God. And if we try and put ourselves in this position of, I don't want to walk with God because that just makes me nervous and we're just going to put up these walls, the author says, that means you don't understand what Christianity is. Putting rules in place will never make you holy. Now, like I said, We're dancing on a knife edge here. We're going to get to the book of James, which is a super fun book. If you're ever not sure what to do in your walk as a Christian, just read the book of James because he's just going to tell you, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And the books are not contradictory, but they're emphasizing different things. The authors of Hebrews are saying, if you're trying to make yourself righteous, if you're saying, I'm going to earn God's approval by doing this, then you do not understand what God's approval is. God's approval is through Jesus Christ. But James, the author of the book of James, is making a complimentary point and saying if you say, I want to have this relationship with God, right, I'm not going to set up rules. Oh no, I just want to have a relationship with God where it's Jesus and he tells me what to do and then I do whatever I want. He says, that also is a very clear demonstration that you have no idea what a relationship with God is about. And so they're emphasizing two complementary points because it's, the church has always wrestled was swinging one way or the other and we don't look at them and say wow they're exclusive we look at them and say wow we embrace them both to the fullest extent if you think that you can do one thing to add to the holiness that jesus christ has offered you you are wrong but if you think that you have the right to accept the salvation of jesus christ and then ignore his word you are wrong they're both true right but tonight we wind up sticking with this side a couple of weeks we'll be back this is why you need to go through the whole word of god or else you will be an imbalanced christian so he goes on verse 32 but you recall the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great struggle with sufferings he's saying remember when you first got saved and it was hard but you were still pressing on because you believed that jesus christ was better verse 33 partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So he's saying, hey, just remember what you, remember what it was like at the beginning, right? When the, when the bonfire lit off at first, we were all excited. That's great. The, it's the same fire. It's changed form a little bit. We've gone to big logs and and, and thick embers. It's the same fire. The same match started it. Right? So that's that's the point he's making. So verse 35, we're going to read 35 down into chapter 11. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while... And now he's quoting from the Old Testament here. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now, the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So, verse 35, he says, don't cast away your confidence. Remember, when you first got saved, just the thrill and the excitement and how awesome Christianity was and how much fellowship you were enjoying with Jesus Christ. Don't lose that. But he's going to now transition away from talking about confidence and he's going to start talking about faithfulness. And it's an interesting thing. We're going to just kind of unpack it for the rest of the night. But what we often associate faith with is confidence. We often say, like, if, if I said, oh, that's a man of great faith, what do we usually think in our mind? Oh, that's a guy who just like no holds barred. He's just always confident that the Lord is going to do what the Lord said. But that's not actually what faith means. Because Paul, uh, sorry, not Paul, whoever wrote this, he says, don't throw away your confidence. That's great. But what you need is endurance. And he says, You need endurance so you can receive the promise. And the promise, he quotes from the book of Habakkuk. And he says, Now the just shall live by faith. This is the idea that's present throughout all of the Old Testament that Paul uh, emphasizes very clearly in the book of Romans. And that is that even in the Old Testament, righteousness is not accomplished through the sacrifices. Righteousness is accomplished through faith. And the, Paul really goes back to the, to the time of Abraham and, and points out in the book of Genesis where we're told that Abraham is made righteous by his faith, not by keeping the law or by doing good works. The author says you need endurance to receive faith. And he associates the two together. And, and, and think about this. We oftentimes think about, oh, you know, he had great faith is almost the same as saying he had great confidence. But what if I said, he was a faithful guy? It's the same word. Faithful just means full of faith. If I say he's a faithful guy, we don't associate that with confidence. We associate that with what? That guy just keeps going. And really, we're not, we're not talking about confidence at all. We're talking about endurance and a willingness to just take the next step, right? And that's, that's a better way to understand faith as it's defined in the Scripture. So he says, you need endurance in order to obtain the promise that the just shall live by faith. If you're going to be made just because you live by faith, you're going to need endurance to walk out that kind of faith. To be full of faith, to walk in endurance, to be faithful, you don't need confidence. You need faith. Faith does not equal confidence. We're going to get to it a little further on. Faith equals Obedience. Great faith is not great confidence. It sometimes can be. And it's, and it's a wonderful thing when it is. But great faith in the life of a Christian is great obedience. It does not have to do anything with how confident you are. Faith is not, oh boy, I'm just super convinced we're going to win this one. Faith is, God said it. And I'm actually kind of freaking out right now because if God does not follow through on his word, I'm going to look like an idiot or I'm going to die, okay? But I'm going to do it anyways, right? Faith is just one step at a time. It's not trying to jump the canyon. It's just God said it. I'm going to do it. And I may not be confident, but I trust the Lord enough to walk in it. And that's why he says in chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is what sustains you. It's the substance. Faith is the meat. Faith is an act. Okay, Faith is is not a hope. It's an act. It's believing in something enough to act upon it because of a past demonstration of constancy. Think about it this way. When I'm outside and I watch a streak of lightning go by, I have faith that I'm about to hear thunder. Because it's been substantiated. Faith is, is a substance of saying, thunder will come because lightning came first. And we understand, oh, right? One thing comes and then another. Faith is this, a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The idea is God has given us his word and he has, that has been fulfilled and he has given us his word that has not yet been fulfilled. And so faith is connecting the two in our mind to say, okay, back here, God did it. He said this would happen, and it happened. And so, because he has shown himself to be competent and to be powerful and to be true as God, I'm therefore going to make a act, I'm going to make a choice to believe that he's capable and going to do it the same way going forward. Faith is saying, okay, God has been true in the past, therefore I believe he will be true in the future. And I believe that deeply enough to walk in obedience. I may struggle to have confidence, but if I believe in the past goodness of God, I will still step forward into the present goodness of God. Okay, so that's where he's going with faith. And what he's going to do now is he's going to go through the Old Testament in a massive, you know, uh, overview form which I'm always kind of a fan of, Um, and give us these just quick pinpoint ideas of various characters in the Old Testament and how they walked by faith and how the just lived by faith. And some of them, some of them had confidence, some of them didn't, but that's not the point. The point is that these people walked in obedience to what God had commanded. So, chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death, and was not found, because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So, each one of these men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, they're all in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which incidentally means that the author of the book of Hebrews considered these men to be historical characters, which example we could learn from. So, that's worth bearing in mind. But, the idea here is, These men had a relationship with God, had a level of fellowship with God that drove their actions. Abel had fellowship with God to understand, I need to offer a sacrifice to God. And so he offered it. Cain, his brother, had an awareness, but for whatever reason, he offered sacrifice either half-heartedly or incorrectly, and the Lord did not receive it. But Abel said, God wants me to sacrifice to him this way, I'm going to sacrifice to him this way. And God received his offering. Not because the offering made him holy, but it was a demonstration of his faith, of his obedience, in what God wanted. Enoch, we're told in Genesis, walked with God, and he was not for God, took him. He walked in fellowship with God that was so deep that God just said, you know what, let's go to heaven. You know, they went for a walk, and God said, we're closer to my house than yours. Let's just go home, right? Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. The, uh, in the book of Genesis, there's an implication that it had never even reigned Up at that point in world history, there was like a water canopy that would water the earth, but wasn't necessarily rain. And God tells Noah, I'm going to send a flood that's going to destroy the entire earth. I want you to build a massive barge. Not a toy boat. I want you to build a massive ark. And Noah says, sure. Which is slightly odd, right? If you're trying to explain to your neighbors why you just cut down every tree in your backyard and why you're now working on a hundred-year construction project, well, it's because God told me there's going to be this thing called rain. What's rain? Well, it's when water comes out of the sky. Why would water come out of the sky? God said it's going to happen. And all his neighbors say, that is the weirdest thing you have ever said, right? But Noah receives the word of God. It does not make sense. We don't know how many times during that 100-year period of building the ark, Noah thought, I hope this works. But he obeyed God, and his faith, his obedience, wound up being his deliverance. Verse 8, we're going to now get the testimony of Abraham and Sarah. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, Gotta love that. We're born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Notice a couple things here. So the faith of Abraham and Sarah, they believed God, we're told that Abraham specifically believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But notice a couple things here. Notice, first of all, the grace of God in retelling their story. If you read the book of Genesis, and then you read this passage here, you think, wow, the Lord was really gracious with the details there, right? Because the Lord gives Abraham a promise. Abraham believes it. But then he's got to wait 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. And along the way, there's this kind of sticky situation with this other lady who winds up bearing a child. No big deal there. That's just the beginning of the entire Islamic world as we know it today. Um, You know, just like this quiet little, like it wasn't totally a sin. It was just not trusting God. And Sarah, God says, you're going to have a son. And Sarah actually laughs. Like, Like, that is stupid. Like, she she derides God's word, which is a pretty big deal. And God says, why did you laugh? She says, I did not laugh. She tells a bold-faced lie to God, and God says, you know what? As crazy as this is, you believe me just enough to accept this. And so she receives a child. The birth of, of the nation of Israel comes through Abraham and Sarah's faith. Their faith was not rooted in confidence. Their faith was obedience. And their faith was only as good as the object of their faith. If you're going to believe in something, your faith will only be as good as the thing you believe in, right? If I believe with full confidence that I can cross I-65 in the dark, wearing black, and not have any problems, it doesn't matter how firmly I believe it. It's not going to happen, right? Because there's these things called semis that move really fast down that road, and I will go flying through the air, and I will die, even if I'm, I'm like super convinced, Right? Now, if you put me in an ambulance and say, we're going to drive across 65, and they turn the lights, and I say, this thing is not going to work. And the ambulance flicks on the lights, and all traffic stops, and they go across. It doesn't matter how much confidence I had in it. It matters what is the quality of the thing I have faith in, right? And so Abraham and Sarah, their faith was not in their confidence, but the God that they were willing to obey was a competent God. Our faith is only as good as what we put it in. Verse 13, these all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He's making an idea here. Faith is believing the word of God, so when you act in faith, you're demonstrating that you believe that God has a better plan than you do. What these people are doing, what they're demonstrating by their action is they believe there is something better than just make yourself happy on this earth right now. They're believing that there's a better life coming. And faith is the demonstration of that because faith, like he said in verse one, is the substance of things hoped for. I hope for a better world than this one. Right? I hope for a better future than what this current world offers me. And my faith is walking in obedience as the demonstration of that hope. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped Leaning on the top of his staff, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So again, it's the same idea over and over again. We're, We're just emphasizing it. Faith is based in God's goodness. It's based in God's trustworthiness. And it's based in seeing those things be demonstrated. And incidentally, that's why our testimony as believers is important. That's why it's important for us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together because we need to be able to come together and say, you know what? Let me encourage you. You're scared right now to step out in faith and walk in obedience. But you know what? I had a similar situation once. And I walked in obedience and I was terrified and God showed up. And he demonstrated that he is competent. And so don't be afraid to do that thing that you're scared of. That's why it says in the book of Revelation that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Jesus saves us. But he encourages us, he commands us to encourage one another by our fellowship with one another, by saying, You know what, God has done this in my life, he wants to do something in your life. I learned either the easy way or the hard way. I learned either by my you know, by by doing the right thing or by doing the wrong thing. I learned the truth about the character of God. Learn from my lesson and apply it to your life. That's why our testimony matters. Verse 23, by faith Moses, he's moving through the chronology of the nation of Israel. When he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, this is an important verse, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches, than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses had the capacity to truly be one of the richest and most powerful men in all of the world. And arguably, if the nation of Egypt was at a a peak at this point, quite possibly in all of human history. He said, no, I'd rather not. I'd I'd rather lead a group of three million maddeningly frustrating whiners for the rest of my life. Because I believe that God is capable of giving me something vastly superior to that. He looked to the reward. By faith, verse 27, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. This is an important part to understanding some of that idea of faith equals obedience not confidence because we're told that by faith they sprinkled blood on the doorpost and and if you're familiar with the book of exodus the lord said i'm going to send an angel of death through the nation of egypt as the 10th and final plague to demonstrate my power and to bring my people out of slavery and if you do not want the death angel to kill the oldest person in the house you need to sacrifice the lamb and you need to sprinkle its blood across the door And and it's very much, it's an incredibly prophetic picture about the coming of Jesus Christ and how he is our covering from the angel of death taking us, okay? But here's what we got to understand. There were Israelites, presumably, who said, sweet, I've watched nine plays happen already. I've seen what God does. I've got a lamb right here. I've got a doorpost right there. Let's just kill the lamb, sprinkle the blood. We are good to go for the night. I'll see you in the morning. And there are presumably Israelites who said, that doesn't make any sense. Like, that doesn't make any sense. How is killing our pet lamb and putting blood on the doorpost going to somehow stop an angel? Like, I think angels can go through doors. You know, like, I, I don't really, this, does, this makes no sense physically. This makes no sense logically. There's nothing going on. But whatever, we'll do it. Right? Maybe, you know, all the neighbors are doing it. Whatever, we'll just go with it. Which house did the death angel pass over? both of them if there was blood on the door the angel passed by by faith the death by their by faith by their faith they preserved the life of their oldest child their faith was not confidence their faith was obedience what did god say and am i willing to act upon it it does not have to be And that's encouraging because, frankly, sometimes God calls us to do something and we have the same response as that second Israelite family. We say, like, I don't want to be disrespectful here, Lord, but I think that's a really stupid idea, right? Like, that makes, that doesn't even, like, make no sense. Like, that makes bad sense, right? And the Lord's like, yeah, I know. Go for it. Watch, 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 watch. This is going to be so much fun. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really think it is, Lord, like, because... You're still God, and I stand a much higher chance of losing, of having my pride uh, shattered. And he's like, yeah, I know. It will be great. I'd love to see your pride get shattered, right? Uh, but he wants to do something, and, and we can wrestle with that, but if we step out in obedience, we are walking in faith. Faith does not equal confidence. Faith equals obedience. And so he goes on, and he's going to start picking up his pace. I kind of like how he, he does this in just a second. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? I'm running out of time, guys. I'm running out of time too. It's 8.12, but that's okay. For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith, Subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again. He says, look, I'm running out of time, but you want to see more examples, just think about all the characters of the Old Testament who walked by faith. And again, uh, we get a picture of the grace of God, because you read these some of these names, and you think those were the guys who were marked by faith? Like... I have as much faith as those guys. Gideon, right? The guy who said, I will only believe that God is saying what he said if he gives me this completely random sign. And then God graciously gives it to him. And he says, yeah, that was a complete fluke. I'm going to do it one more time, and I'm going to completely flip all the scenario. And God gives it to him. That's not what we would associate with faith if we're thinking of it as confidence. But he then does it. Barak is told by God, I want you to go fight, I think it's the Midianite army, but fight the pagan army. And he says, I'm only going if that lady goes in front. Like, it's not really the best moment for, uh, you know, the chauvinistic movement. Like, it's just kind of, was it was not really a shining episode there. Like, I will go as long as this girl is in front, right? Like, I just, as long as, you know, hey, ladies first, right? Um, Samson is a man who's driven by his lust his entire life. Jephthah is a man who makes a foolish vow and lives to regret it. And David... Commits adultery, commits murder, uh, just like David is serving the Lord so well for the first half of his life and just falls apart in the second half, right? And But he says through faith they did all these incredible things. They accomplished all these incredible works for God. And we say, wow, that's amazing, and it is. And walking in faith is an incredible chance to watch God do amazing things in your life. If you want to see God move in ways that you did not think were possible, walk in faith, in obedience, one step at a time. But before he finishes the the chapter, he's got a final two paragraphs that really matter. He says, others, I just gave you the whole list of everybody who had these awesome things happen because, man, they stepped out in faith, they stepped out in obedience, and God really came through for them. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. That is not like a great job description if you're trying to hire people. But notice what it says verse thirty eight, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And this is an important paragraph. This is really critical for us to understand because sometimes there's a, there's a teaching that goes around the church that if you just obey the Lord hard enough, everything will fall into place. And sometimes it's, it's a truth. Sometimes you walk with the Lord, you walk in obedience to the Lord, and just like everything falls in line. Right, I mean, there are pastors who walk with the Lord, who are faithfully teaching the Word of God, and they, you know, they've got an amazing family, they've got amazing health, their church is just exploding faster than they can build new buildings, and it's just exciting to watch. And they're holding true to the Word of God. They're just people are growing and getting discipled and coming to Jesus Christ, and it's just an amazing work of God that's happening in their lives. And there are other people with no less obedience who just endure struggles for their entire earthly life. And it is one hard thing after another, and they just keep obeying. And, and, what, and we can look at it, if we're not careful, and say, well, wait a second. Obviously, this person here has to have more faith than this person, because if you were walking in faith, God would be, you know, like, there'd be a sign somewhere that God was rewarding your efforts. And the author says, no, no, no. These people, the world doesn't even deserve them. The world doesn't deserve to be graced with the presence of the faithfully oppressed, right? And so sometimes that's important because serving the Lord, the point he's been making all through chapter 11, but really through chapters 10 and chapters 9 and 8, is that the idea of Christianity is that we are looking to something ahead. We are looking to something greater. And the Lord does promise us specific blessings here on earth. Okay, there's the blessing of we get to have fellowship with Christ right now. We get to have uh, encounters with his Holy Spirit. We get the word of God here. We get to actually experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are gifts he gives us while we're on earth as a demonstration of his power. Those things will not always be here. We're told in 1 Corinthians that, you know, someday hope is going to be gone. We won't need hope anymore. It'll, be, it'll just be completed. Someday marriage will be gone. It's a great thing here. The Lord sees it as a, as a wonderful gift to people. But it's going to be gone someday because there's going to be something better coming along. So there are things, there are good things that happen here on earth. okay. But understand that the definition of a successful Christian life is never measured by what happens here on earth. It's measured by, are you walking in obedience to the word of God? And so the author makes a very clear point and we just need to hang on to that point through life as trials come. And that is that, we are looking to a future reward. And we can get hung up sometimes, I'm, I'm serving the Lord and I expect him to show up for me. And he will show up for you. But God is not in a hurry. Right? God is not in a rush to make sure he gives you every blessing before you die. Because he has all eternity to bless you and to show you things and, and to just pour out his goodness. And so he is in no rush And so if life is hard, and I know for many of us it can be, and it is, and it's just a a constant day by day, can I put one foot in front of the other? You know what that is called? That's called faith. That's called great faith. The author says the world was not worthy of those people. And so verse 39, he says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They did not get their reward on earth. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Some people do not get their reward on earth. Some people get a part of it on earth. Some people, you know, Jesus said, if you're doing your work, to be seen by men. You got all of it on earth, and you're not getting any of that in heaven. Some people, it's like a 50-50 split. And it's not, that's a stupid way to say it, because the blessings of heaven will be much greater. It's like a, you know... Uh, one in a 10,000 split, I don't even know. It's stupid, whatever. Some people don't get their blessings on earth. The Lord's just, he's saving them up. And they're, they're growing interest. You know, they're, it's compound interest. So the blessings of the Lord are coming. But they're not here yet. And so, for all of us, we look to the idea that understanding Jesus Christ is better should drive us. It should drive our actions here, but it should drive us with a vision for the future. It drives our future hope because we are looking to an eternal kingdom. We're looking to eternal rewards. We are not looking to get all of our needs and wants and desires and cravings and appetites met here. We are looking to walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ and experience the thrill and the privilege and the challenge and the blessing of faithfully walking in obedience step by step. And that is a blessed life right there. So Lord, we thank you for your word and the power that's in it. We pray that it would go deep into our hearts and that we would be impacted and affected by it. God, we want to be people of faith, people of great obedience. We want to take what you tell us and act upon it because you have shown yourself to be true. Your word has held. Your word has remained steadfast. Your word has never failed. And so, God, we want to continue to trust in it to continue to trust that you are a good God, you are a faithful God, you are a loving and merciful and just God. And so we pray that we would walk in in fellowship and in relationship with you, that we would know Jesus Christ more, that we would come boldly to the throne of grace. Lord, we ask these things. We ask for all the, the fullness of your power here on earth because we want to walk in victory, but we're asking that you would just go before us, guide us, and lead us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.